Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. Welcome back to Unboxy World. In today's episode, we are interviewing Dr. Brennan Jacoby, who is a philosopher and the founder of Philosophy at Work, which is a collective of philosophers, business psychologists, authors, and practitioners who are teaching the skills that professionals need to think their best. Brennan also holds a PhD in philosophy, and he is specifically specialized in the philosophy of trust. So today we will dig into what trust means, the philosophy of trust, and what this then also means in the context of blockchain. Can technology really help us solve and scale human trust? And can technology ever replace human trust? Well, these are some of the topics that we will discuss today. So tune in and let's get started. Hello, Brennan Jacoby. Uh, welcome to uh, Unboxy World. <laughs> Thank you, Maria. It's so good to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I'm likewise. Um, it's going to be very interesting to hear all your philosophical uh, uh, thoughts. <laughs> mm. Pleasure. So, um, so yeah, let's get started. So, you are the founder of uh, Philosophy at Work. Mm. Um, so, the question is then. In your opinion, why do you think that we need philosophy at work? And uh, especially how could uh, tech companies uh, benefit from, from having more philosophers working for them? Yeah, right. So philosophy at work, I mean, maybe it's useful, first of all, to say that um, philosophy at work is a collective of people with backgrounds in philosophy, business psychology. Um, we work with authors, a, a variety of different thinkers, and we're working on the skills that we would say a range of professionals in the sort of broader sense need to really thrive well these days. So they're generally thinking skills like critical thinking, curiosity, strategic thinking, but also some of the other skills that um, make space where those thinking skills can really thrive. So for example, um, I did my PhD on the topic of trust and we still work a lot on trust, which I wouldn't say that trust is a thinking skill, but we know that we don't think our best unless we feel safe. So a lot of times what we're trying to do is create the right environment for our brains to do what they're best at and for all the sort of skill and experience of people that are working together to come out and, and, and not be inhibited. And so, um, you know, I think with what I'm trying to do, I'm not that, I'm not, I'm not a huge proponent of needing the history of philosophy in business. 
Um, you know, sometimes in our sessions, when we do uh, training workshops and keynotes and things like that with businesses, we will reference um, people that, you know, the world would recognize as historical philosophers or something. But I'm not so concerned that people are able to quote Socrates or um, uh, Simone de Beauvoir or someone. I'm much more concerned that people are able to think for themselves, uh, exercise agency, have really constructive, positive debates. And, um, and so that's why I say it's not about sort of teaching the history of philosophy. It's about getting people to, to do philosophy. And maybe this goes to the point of your question of sort of why do we need that today, specifically in, in tech, why is it needed? And I think that goes right back to the etymology of the word philosophy. So, you know, in the Greek, phyla means love, Sophia means wisdom. And so when we're doing philosophy, we should be ideally um, pursuing wisdom. Um, and I think wisdom is really salient right now. Wisdom is really needed um, because we're living and working at a time which is so fast paced, something that is even more felt in the tech space. Um, not only in tech, but certainly in tech, it's something we talk a lot about, you know, pace and speed. And um, so there's a lot of pace, there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot of um, newness, right? And wisdom is this thing that, you know, when you look up definitions of wisdom, it's a blend of experience, uh, sort of know-how, knowledge, intelligence, but being able to go beyond the written rules to take what you've learned from that experience and apply it appropriately in that sort of balanced way, you know, in a way that like Aristotle would say is not sort of excessive or deficient to find the sort of virtue that's in the middle of, of ways of living. And I think tech really um, is, is where some of this is most pronounced though. I mean, I, I work with, you know, tech firms, but also law firms and creative agencies and a group of lo loads of different people. But I think within tech, there's so much complexity, so much um, newness and we're sort of uh, exploring new frontiers where we really need to be thinking our best, to be thinking carefully. I mean, ethics, you know, the branch of philosophy that comes in hugely in this as well. So, so I'd say we need philosophy, you know, in the context of work, because when you're doing new things, when you're challenging the status quo, um, we need to be able to slow down and make sure that we're really thinking carefully and doing that well, because, you know, you're creating opportunities for people that don't even know they existed, right? And so coming up with ways to do that, that are really well thought through because of all the power um, that's involved in, in the new sort of frontier working out that we're doing. Yeah, it's, um, so the, are you saying that we need um, wisdom even more now um, than before because of the past pace change? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe if I give you another example, there was a piece of work that was done um, by an academic named Keith Grint. Um, he did it when he was at Warwick University, now he's at Oxford, but he and his team were looking at the kinds of challenges that businesses are up against, and specifically leaders within businesses. And he, he found that there were three types of challenges, um, uh, urgent ones, um, tame ones, and what he calls wicked problems, which is the sort of language that, that I'm sure um, uh, many of the listeners have come across in, in recent years, but a wicked problem, that's a term that he, he borrowed from social planning uh, research uh, from the 1970s. But what he was using it to talk about was uh, challenges that are characterized by high degrees of complexity and lots of uncertainty. And I think when you're going into sort of new areas, um, 
like, I don't know, let's say metaverse, for example, um, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of things that we um, maybe we haven't dealt with before. And what Grint and his team found was when you have a problem that's really urgent or it's, its chief characteristic is urgency, um, then an answer is right. So say the building's on fire, that's an urgent problem. We just want someone to give us an answer. You know, everyone go in that direction, whatever. When there's a tame problem, which is the kind of problem that's not necessarily urgent, but is one which um, you can just roll out a process or a policy for. So that's something we've dealt with before. That's great. But when you have a lot of complexity and uncertainty, what Grint found was that actually the last thing we should do is just give an answer. Instead, we need to ask questions and be curious and sort of try to dissect what's going on because it's new, it's complex. And I just feel like that's the bulk of what we're dealing with these days. If there's things that are that have quick answers, we can probably get a piece of tech to do it for us. But where the really interesting stuff and the really important, where it's important to get like a human on the job is probably some more of that gray area stuff where we need to be doing some of the creative thinking for ourselves. Um, and, and, and that, uh, the suggestion is that that requires a lot of critical thinking, questioning, curiosity. And I think that's where um, a lot of philosophy comes in to be helpful. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, speaking of new technologies, um, uh, blockchain is uh, maybe not new, new, but I, I think that it's still quite new from if you look at the, the history. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, like that is um, something that we don't know yet what it can be, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, and um, but one of the things that blockchain is argued to be sold is, is trust. Um, right. And you have a PhD on the philosophy of trust, and you argue that it doesn't really solve trust. Yeah. Um, so could you explain um, why? And and could 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 technology ever um, replace human trust? Um, yeah. So I, I hope this isn't frustrating. I, I'll I'll say yes, it could replace it, but um, not as a one-to-one -one replacement. Um, and and. I'm probably in the camp of people that would say, I'd be disappointed if blockchain replaced trust. Um, so I'll, I'll come back to that, but maybe the, the bone that I pick with blockchain that, that you, you touched on, where, you know, as you say, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not hopeful that uh, blockchain is, gets trust right. Um, in fact, I'm, uh, I'm critical of when we talk, when I hear people talking about blockchain as a system of trust, as it often is, um, I don't think that's accurate use of language. Um, and, and what I mean is maybe if we just step back and say, uh, you know, a little bit in terms of the basics of blockchain. So um, I know this isn't a conversation about sort of uh, the nitty gritty of blockchain, but, you know, if we say that blockchain is this, this, um, uh, relationship of, of, it's a network, right? Where transactions um, are, are living in multiple places so that they're, you can't tamper with them and you can know what's going on for real, right? I mean, sort of the, in, in plain language, the appeal of blockchain is that you can't tamper with it. You can track what's going on. Um, and, and, you know, I can understand why people would say, well, it's a system of trust then because no longer do I need to sort of worry about what's happened to, I don't know, my cryptocurrency or something, I can just, I can know that it's not, you know, there's a record of it, right? That, that is 
um, that's that's going to be true. <laughs> and that's pretty appealing at a time where there's, you know, what counts as true is so debated in other areas of life. So when it comes to finance and blockchain, it's really nice and comforting to know that, well, at least we know what the transactions were. Um, so I can understand why we would say that it's a system of trust because it feels like something that we can trust. But the reason I say I think the language is, is not accurate in this instance is that um, blockchain doesn't enable trust. I think it enables reliance. And I think there's a significant difference between the two, which is useful and important to, to note. Um, and actually the thing that's, that's powerful about human to human trust is something that I think we lose a bit when we when we take some of that language over to blockchain, um, which I don't think is taking anything away from blockchain. Um, you know, I'm still a big fan of blockchain. I think it's great um, as a system for supporting reliance. I just don't think it gets that trust. Um, and so the reason just to, to sort of cut to the chase is that um, blockchain enables us to feel safe about our transactions but I think it takes away the very need for trust. So if I say, um, part of the, you know, say that I, I don't know, I'm trusting you um, to care for, uh, I don't know, um, let's, you know, just to use a sort of analogous uh, example, um, I leave some money with you, some like cash with you, right? And I'm, I'm entrusting my cash to you. Um, I'm vulnerable to you letting me down. I'm vulnerable to you like actually betraying me with that cash and all those sorts of things. And on the one hand, I'm much more vulnerable if I leave my money with a human than if I leave my money in a blockchain sort of scenario. Um, so on, the one, on that one hand, the blockchain is a safer, safer bet. Um, I can rely on the blockchain more than maybe I can rely on a human. But the, 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 the test for whether or not it's really trust or just reliance is I think whether or not I can be not just let down, but betrayed. Is there an opportunity for me to be where I can be so vulnerable that, um, I'm actually betrayed. And I think the answer, you know, so say the sort of proponents of blockchain is no, it's, it's such a robust system. It, it's so, such a reliable system. No, you cannot be betrayed. And so I would say, well, therefore I might feel really safe, you know, using my, leaving my money in the system, but it doesn't enable me to trust um, because trust is not, trust is irrelevant in that context. Um, where I think trust is really interesting is when there is vulnerability and it's not just a matter of can I rely on you, but can I trust you to do what's beyond what we've already discussed? What, you know, I don't even know what situations might come up. So can I, can I entrust something of value to you um, and think that you're trustworthy to the point where you're not just going to sort of do what I think you would, but do the right thing, even if I don't know what's going to happen. Does it, does it, does this make sense? Like, I think there's something about the sort of agency that I think is really important for trust that maybe is something more to unpack. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, think about a love relationship, right? Where it's the ultimate, uh, ultimate vulnerability where you can mm. be, um, um, but you wouldn't replace love, love relationship with the blockchain, right? <laughs> I'm just right. like going completely off track now, but uh, um, yeah. it, it's definitely the human side of it that um, is a significant difference, right? Yeah, yeah, and I guess I mean, mm -hmm. so you know, playing devil's advocate, uh, some people might, some people listening to our conversation might say, well, but Brendan, you're just you know, you're just dealing in semantics, like 
when we say that blockchain is a system of trust, all we really mean is it's a system that you can that you can trust that that's secure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a lot of times how we use language around trust in everyday speaking, um, and I, I'm fine with that and I agree with that. You know that that's okay. Yes, probably when we say it's a system of trust, we mean uh, we feel secure in it, but. At the same time, I kind of want to say, oh, but that's a shame, like, because trust isn't just about feeling safe. So to your, the, to the love relationship example, or even in like a coll- collegial relationship at work or friends and things, um, the reason that we want to have people in our lives that we trust isn't just so that we never get burned. It's so that we have a greater sense of identity and belonging and connection and that our, our, our projects become bigger when we collaborate and they expand with, you know, it's so we could use the blockchain to enable greater collaboration as many people have, you know, I mean, look at the, the, the great um, movements towards equality, inclusivity and in, around finance. I mean, how many people are able to get involved in investment because of blockchain that had no access to sort of um, more traditional banking. Right. So, it's really good, and, I, and I'm not um, opposed to blockchain, but I just, I just don't think it's right to say that it is a system of, of trust um, because it actually removes some of it. Much in the same way, maybe, maybe another good example is like a contract, right? So um, we have contracts specifically where power goes beyond our reasonable you know, uh, expectations for trustworthiness, right? So. I have contracts with, um, I don't know, uh, uh, clients or, or various people that uh, where, where our engagement reaches beyond what we should be able to know about each other or something, right? Like it, it supports us, particularly almost, this sounds a bit dark, but almost because we don't trust each other or can't trust each other, right? So if we're saying here's an area where it just feels like there's so much at stake, we don't wanna just leave it down to trust. So we're gonna make it really clear in writing. I think that's where blockchain is. There's so much power these days globally around finance that we don't just wanna leave that to, um, to human error or human you know, um, malicious intent. And so let's siphon that off and put it over here in a closed system that is completely trackable. Um, that's great. I'm not against contracts, I'm not against blockchain, but I, I don't think that they do the work of trust. They, they step in where trust has its limitations, but where trust mm-hmm. is really uh, powerful and beautiful is when it comes to sort of enrichment at a, 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 a human relationship level that adds meaning and identity and belonging to our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's from, from a bit more technical perspective, um, the... Um, so what I've understood is that um, how what 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 blockchain is really doing, and, and now I might use the word trust yeah. <laughs> again, anyways, <laughs> um, is uh, through um, something called the Dunbar's number. Um, mm. so I, I think that is a very very good way to explain the mechanism of what blockchain is doing, and. So the Dunbar's number is um, uh, the um, so-called suggested cognitive limit of the number of people of whom we can maintain stable social relationships with. So Mm. meaning the number of people we can um, trust in our lives. Um, 
and then and it's estimated to be somewhere around 150 that can be um, debatable so what what then essentially is the saying is that okay so about 150 people we can trust and make business with in our in our in our lives um but it's argued then that blockchain can go beyond this mm. um, and that we can trust and organize uh, ourselves and our societies yeah. to 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 do more and trust more people in a secure way um yeah. and this is what is argued to um enable more opportunities in our societies um mm. Mm. um what do you say could you explain this like what what do you what does this mean um yeah for you in a society <laughs> yeah um so i think it's really exciting mm -hmm. but it's also um i don't know it's exciting i um, I'm going to try to stay positive <laughs> because I think it's, I think it is exciting, but it, the reason I say I'm going to try to stay positive is because, um, there's, uh, there's an opportunity, I think for us to say, well, blockchain, um, can extend Dunbar's number and therefore, um, expand the, the, the number of people we can, we can truly connect with. And I'm not sure that it can quite do that. Um, but I'm staying positive by saying it, it, it enables us to carve out and more clearly understand the role of human uh, close proximity, proximate relationships um, versus those that are uh, cultivated via something like blockchain. For example, if, if we say that um, we could previously do business with up to 150 people, you know, based on the hypothesis of Dunbar's number, then blockchain enables that number to increase insofar as the, uh, the, the the styles or modes of interaction, you could say, with those ever-increasing numbers are primarily transactional. Um, yes, I can transact with a lot more people and that's really positive. For example, as, as, the, um, as we mentioned a moment ago, the number of people globally who have access to funding who, who didn't before, that's incredibly positive. Um, how, I, I, how I tend to think about Dunbar's number though is, in terms not just of transactional interaction, but in terms of um, otherwise meaningful interactions, right? So the, the number of people that we can have close relationships with, um, I, for blockchain to extend that, um, we still need to learn quite a lot about the people interacting in the blockchain, right? So mm -hmm. I could learn quite a lot about someone who, um, I've never met face-to-face, -face, whether that's in person or virtually or anything. Um, but by, I suppose if I study their, the, the style of transactions or the types of things they tend to invest in um, on a blockchain, I can really, I can get to know quite a lot about them, right? I mean, there's how, how, you know, how much can we tell about a person's spending habits? Quite a lot these days, right? So, um, so we can get to know people that way, but I've got to do quite a bit more work to, to develop a, uh, a robust, what I might call a robust relationship that's beyond transaction. Um, so where I think blockchain enables Dunbar's number to grow in a really positive way, it's in um, interactions which are primarily valuable because they're transactional. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and, and sorry, just to add on that, the, the, the thing where I think it's really positive is it says we can, we can offload that, that, those types of transactions, which are really valuable and really important, over here and then recognize, okay, um, other types of interactions that we wanna have 
that are not primarily transactional, like the love relationship, brother types of things that you mentioned. Um, we have a different way of thinking about those, I suppose. Mm. But I still find it interesting. You were saying that uh, you could extend the relationships that you uh, don't have a close one with. Um, mm. So what you're saying is that because maybe the power of just like getting the data in front of you that um, you could mm. still again in a I guess it's comparing maybe if you do a lot of research about the person then maybe you trust the person because like okay this seems like a legit one to make business with but it, you can scale it quicker um, is that what you're saying yeah, yeah. well I, I think it's I'm not sure if it's quicker mm. it's farther reaching for sure Mm -hmm. Right. So, so definitely blockchain enables us mm -hmm. to do trans to, to have do transactions, to do business in that sense with people that we never would have had access to mm -hmm. in terms of quantity and breadth in terms of geographical reach. Mm -hmm. um, but for me to get to and going back to what we said before around um, blockchain being a system of reliability and security, uh, though, I would say not necessarily trust from the start there's a baked into blockchain there's this element of reliance so because of blockchain i have an, an exponential pretty quick you know increase in number of people that i can rely on or, or actually i mean i would want to sort of clean that up even a little bit more and say am i really relying on the people i'm relying on the blockchain right mm -hmm. so so it's not that i'm relying on the people but i'm relying on the, on the blockchain which is another reason why i want to say it's not really i'm not trusting the people uh, I don't think I'm trusting the blockchain. I'm relying on the blockchain because as far as I understand it, it's not a, the blockchain doesn't have agency. So it's, it's going to do what we expect it to do. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, it makes it very reliable. It doesn't set it up to betray me. And so I think it's better to say it's reliance than trust, but, but through, to come back to your point, if I get to know the way that people transact and invest in things, I might say, oh, look, this person who I only know through their handle, um, you know, I recognize that that's a, a, a I guess, an individual, right? Um, I, I might, you know, come to know their investment habits and things, and that might show me something of their values and these sorts of things. But it takes quite a bit of work still to get to say, to get to a place where I can go, I think I can actually trust that person and add them to my Dunbar number, if that makes sense. Um, so I can rely on the system. There's a lot of security in it, but how quickly it enables us to expand beyond the people that we can rely, like, like really do trustworthy business with. I'm not quite so sure um, in terms of speed. And to that point that I almost sort of got, I almost tripped myself up on a moment ago. <laughs> It might, you know, for all I know, maybe the, 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 the being behind that handle isn't an individual, you know, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a group, maybe, it, I don't know, you know, um, which highlights the degree to which there's a lot of security and kind of for me to do business in the blockchain, I don't need to know if they're an individual or whatever, because it's so secure, but um, the transaction's still safe, but surely that means I don't trust them. I just rely on the system. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and so what's, I mean, what people are talking uh, the, mostly about with blockchain is that the biggest opportunity is, uh, is decentralization. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that from, uh, I, I heard a TED talk about this, um, but from a historical point of view, like we have been decentralized 
um, throughout history most of the time we've been mostly living in communities um um back in the days um organizing ourselves from from that from a small community perspective um yeah. but then uh, if you uh, centuries ago it was 500 years i don't remember how many years ago then we started centralizing ourselves and organizing in a new way um yeah. but what the blockchain is supposed to open up a new opportunity to decentralize ourselves again um kind of combining um the best of two worlds in a way i guess um so um but what what does um i mean the, what does this mean what are the the benefits of, of this would you say and the, what do you think that the ancient philosophers would have said about uh, <laughs> yeah decentralization and blockchain <laughs> that's a really good, good interesting fascinating question um i mean a couple of things come to mind that are that a little bit out there but i'll share them anyway because hopefully it's it'll be in to some at some level interesting and i hope spark something for um for others that are listening to go further um but i mean for, first of all talking about ancient ancient thinkers um you know a lot of philosophers ancient philosophers at least in um so i primarily uh study western philosophy um and actually this is something that's different from say eastern philosophy where you see a lot more emphasis on decentralization but when you look at ancient western philosophy you have some pretty um you know lauded throughout history proponents of centralization right like plato um the ancient greek thinker where um you know who's there, there's a, a 20th century philosopher named willard van ormond Quine, Quine, wb Quine, who said that all of western philosophy is basically a series of footnotes back to plato so uh, so making the case that plato is pretty central um and Plato argued for there being pretty centralized, you know, a philosopher king, right? Saying that um, we should have states that are run by philosophers, um, which I try not to shout too much about um, <laughs> because I don't know that that's really right. That's a good move. Um, but then you could also look at even moving more through through history, you know, the um, 18th century philosopher, Jeremy Bentham. Um, I mean, he, you know, famous for utilitarian uh, moral philosophy, but talked about the, um, you know, design the panopticon, right? This, this approach to um, a prison where you have a very centralized, uh, there's one guard stood in the middle of this sort of um, architectural, you know, structure um, with all the, the, the prison sort of cells um, facing into the center such that the the inmates never know when the prison guard is watching them and so they sort of feel watched all the time um so i mean there's some pretty uh kind of scary examples i think throughout the history of ideas of centralization and um at the same time you do have you do have voices of you know proponents of decentralization for example um my mind goes to epicurus again another ancient greek thinker who was um talked about associating you know happiness and well-being um to the collective right so um having one of the first sort of communes and having things in common um but i think the issue this is this is going to be too general but the issue with centralization and the value of decentralization is um is not where power sits but with the fallibility of those who have the power right so mm -hmm. a central uh, when the, the, the downside of centralized power is that it's pretty hard to find an example of a human that's held all the power and managed that really well. 
and not become corrupt or something like that. Um, so the value of decentralized power is that we're spreading things out and there's a lot more accountability. And if anything goes wrong, it's, it's, there's not as much at stake and we can all work together. And, and that's, that's really good. And there's a lot more equality baked into the system and everything. And so, um, sense, yeah. so that's really good. But at the same time, uh, again, I don't know. I feel like maybe it's the time of day. You've caught me sort of in a neg negative mood, but I'm going to try to stay positive. But I think there's, um, you know, with decentralization, have we solved for fallibility? Mm. Um, well, usually when I hear people talk about decentralized uh, things, I'm on board and I like that, but they're not saying that they've solved for human fallibility. Um, but I suppose baked into the system is that, right? You might say, well, no, we're still fallible and that's why we're spreading things out. We're sort of hedging our bets by, by decentralizing. So, so anyway, I'm, I'm sort of regressing a little bit, but the, the point that I want to um, make with hopefully all of this is that I think when we talk about decentralizing, that is positive because it, 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 um, it bakes in some checks and balances, right? Mm. Um, I, I think that um, the history of philosophy is not necessarily the place to go for a, a, a magic bullet or one-stop you know, answer um, for these things because you get, you've got a lot of messed up people trying to think well. And I mean, that's kind of like, mm. you know, what I would say is the story of humanity, right? Um, and so that, that, which is another reason that with, the work that I do with businesses, with philosophy at work, I'm not always championing particular philosophers because they're human too. What we're championing is um, the pursuit of careful thinking and, and wisdom. Um, and so, you know, we don't, we want to stand on the shoulders of people like Socrates, but we want to not sort of hold them up too highly, right? Because they're still people. And so, um, so anyway, all that, all that to say, I think, I don't think that the history of philosophy is, is the place to look for, for sort of all the answers, but they, you do, you do lift out some really helpful, um, ways of, ways of questioning, modes of questioning. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we think about whether or not, you know, it's valuable to decentralize and things, well, that's, that's good. But I guess what I'm saying with blockchain, that, that's, you know, it's helpful to, to decentralize the power when it comes to finance. Um, but I guess what I'm just cautious of is that's not sufficient. It's a perhaps a necessary and important condition for financial global health or something like that. Um, but it's not going to be the whole story because there still is um, there's there still are there, there's still going to be problems. <laughs> I guess to be pessimistic again. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I think um, a lot of interesting reflections there. Um, um in, in a way that i haven't heard it before um so yeah um the the human fallibility um i guess also what like, what happens usually is that you, you solve a problem but then um um you always get a new um new something new that uh, rise of it that you wouldn't couldn't uh, uh what do, you, what do you call it? It's forecast right that you couldn't right, predict right. um yeah so you will always uh, get a new um problems mm. <laughs> that you have to to manage right yeah yeah uh, and then that's just a matter of finding the the least bad way to, to right. organize ourselves right <laughs> yeah and and you know i mean blockchain looks like a pretty good step in the right direction right because mm -hmm. if if i'm saying that the you know look out for human fallibility then you could say well hey you know blockchain does a pretty good job because it's it's taken a lot of human error out of it mm -hmm. 
um, arguably all of it, right? So it's 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 a closed system that's mm. transactionally, you know, um, sound. Um, but I guess what I'm just wanting to say is, let's let's make sure that we continue thinking critically along the way because maybe blockchain solves for some things, but um, we're going to find new new areas that we hadn't really realized before, but were but were problematic. And, 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 you know, equally opportunities as well. And so it's not enough to say, well, do you know what, we've got the tech sorted. I mean, similarly, um, at the start of, you know, in like two years ago, basically this week, right, when, when there was a lot of lockdowns kicking off and things around um, uh, COVID um, and the global pandemic, I was working with quite a few companies where I was hearing this sort of view that, that was that no one was coming out and saying this but it was like they were in, they were implying that well we've 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 solved the tech issue everyone's at home in their home office they've all got some kind of platform account so we can communicate and have meetings virtually and stuff we've sort of set up the tech and so we're sorted but then what we found throughout the last two years was that's the first step but actually a lot of the like human stuff how do you collaborate how do you trust each other how do you think creatively together um all that still needed some more solutions and in the same in the same way just as um having the tech that enables a home office is not sufficient for really excellent uh, effective productivity for teams distrib distributed teams um so too i don't think having just the tech solution of blockchain is sufficient for financial global well-being um we we have to be thinking creatively and, and critically and and staying engaged and we need everyone to to remain curious um in the most constructive way i guess yeah 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 no easy solution there's no no <laughs> no bullet solution right <laughs> yeah. well, but I, I, I mean maybe to to on a on a happy note i think mm -hmm. yes you're right there's no there's no um one easy solution but i think the the recipe if it doesn't give us a clear answer, but it, but there is one, it's not an easy solution, but one solution that seems clear is like, if you imagine, I mean, just, just take like, for example, a tech company or uh, a community, right? Geographical sort of community. Um, there might not be an easy answer, but if, if all the members of that team within the tech firm or the, the village or whatever were felt supported and empowered enough to uh, that their that their view would be considered seriously. That their that if they ask a question that someone deems to be a silly question, they're not going to be shamed. You know, if they all felt um, respected enough to share their ideas and ask their questions to critique each other in a way that was supportive, uh, rather than sort of this like dog eat dog competition. Um, surely that is that that is the magic bullet i mean it's not it's not a one size fits all kind of thing but if you if you say whatever the future holds we're going to get through it by having a collective um discussion of of pe you know people trying to find you know navigate through the complexity by engaging their brains and all their experience and wisdom they bring i think that's that's how we're going to do it that the actual solutions to it are going to be unique to each each challenge but but it's so it's not it's not right to say that's a magic bullet but i think it is a it's a it's a recipe that i mm -hmm. i'm pretty hopeful mm -hmm. of
a direction what to strive for kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i think so yeah mm. Yeah, so um, um, I mean, and with your business, uh, philosophy mm. at work, you you uh, teach uh, the skills that uh, you believe professionals need to thrive today yes. or in the future. Mm. Um, mm. So, in particular, in the tech industry, where we're paving the way with new technologies, um, yeah. what are you? What skills do you think that um, is in particular tech that um, will are the most important at this time? Yeah. Yeah, that's a fun one. So, I mean, some of the, the ones that we've been seeing um, add the most value to the tech firms that we're working with are things around self-awareness, um, curiosity, mm-hmm. and, um, and psychological safety. So some of the trust stuff that we've, we've been talking about. So self-awareness, because, um, you know, so much has been said that subjectivity, human subjectivity is, is, is a, a key thing to be aware of and and consider whether or not we're talking about bias or um or just the values that that we're baking into you know apps and algorithms and things um and so the better able that you know and it's not just tech but but within tech the more the better able we are to spot where we're um to spot the interplay between our own subjectivity and object you know as close as we can come to something that is objective um, that's really, really helpful um, because we're, we're just that bit, bit faster to catch assumptions. Um, but then also curiosity sort of links right into that. Um, one of the things that we do in our workshops on curiosity is help people understand the different ways that curiosity can show up and so they can identify their own strengths in curiosity and, and work out the pra- their own practice of asking the kinds of questions that are going to help them um, uh, draw out what they need from other clients and colleagues and things. And, um, and a theme that always comes up through that is empathy. So curiosity that shows up as empathy, where we're not just curious about the work or the world, but curious about each other, um, curious about what each other thinks. And, um, and I think that's got to be a good thing for for every business but surely for tech as well you know in particular um and that's what we're seeing if you know for the reason that um i don't know particularly if we're working with say groups of engineers um to cultivate the uh the understanding across a really diverse group of people where they can um use their the really high intelligence and expertise um, and translate that well across different different areas of, of the business is really key. And then the other thing I, I said was um, trust and psychological safety. And, and I think that just comes in because, um, you know, from my own experience, the, the tech businesses that I'm working with, some of them are sort of the, the sort of big, well-established ones, but a lot of them are sort of scale up size and and when that's happening there's a you know the speed is is just off the charts and so when you're onboarding so many people and trying to to um, cultivate the kind of culture that that's going to help the the business be sustainable um you know it's really important that you that you think about trust and psychological safety and, and helping people feel um, appreciated and res- you know respected in it. So so those and that's not just you know that's not just for um, sort of leaders. We need that to be throughout for it to really work. So so that's why those those things of self awareness, curiosity, trust, and psychological safety mm-hmm. um, come to mind for me when I think about tech. 
Yeah, I I come from the hyper growth uh, company, so I, I know exactly what you're talking mm. about. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. what am I curious? I mean, I'm particularly curious about the self awareness um, um, part. Um, mm. Like, how would you actually go about to? I mean, the, the, the curiosity inside. Like, the, I mean, you you hear curiosity and psychology safety a lot more. Um, yeah. Um, that like like corporations want to work on them but self-awareness how do you actively work on that yeah like what can you do because <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. self-awareness yeah, mm. yeah self-awareness is um is notoriously difficult to cultivate it almost feels like mm. something about human consciousness just makes mm. it hard mm. right to do um because we're always looking through our own subjective lenses um so what we i mean what we do in sessions mm. is we do exercises that help people identify their own personal values um, mm -hmm. and then connect those to the values of, you know, the stated values, at least, of the team or department or areas, you know, businesses, whatever. So that through the dialogue of not just identifying those personal values, but then trying to critically examine the linkage between their personal values and the corporate ones, they come to understand, better understand them. And that starts more of an awareness and understanding of, oh, here's where my values kind of might show up. And the more that we practice that, the quicker we are to say, oh, I think this is right, <laughs> but maybe that's, maybe that's my, my subjective lens, you know? And so it's, it's, we're not, I, I, it's, it's too much of an uphill battle and I don't think it's possible to, to try to reduce our subjectivity, but what we can, well, to an extent we're, we're reducing it by increasing our awareness of what's going on, but we're not going to change the fact that we have nor, nor, you know, is it always what we want to do to try to change the fact that we have values and, and all these things. Um, I mean, that's why we want to hire diversely because we have, we want everyone in the room to have diversity of thought, different backgrounds, you know, all kinds of really enriching things. We want those, those, those values and differences to, to really um, shine, but, but the more we're aware of it is helpful. And so through, through the exercise, like I mentioned, but then also, um, there's a, a one thing that we do that that is a suggestion for out of out of the session because it's it just takes time um, and this is I have to name check um, Tasha Urek. Um she's a, a researcher who focuses on self awareness and um, and talks a lot about this but the fact that you can't when it comes to cultivating self awareness it's hard to beat um, feedback from others and so the idea is that we um, we encourage people that we work with to have a thinking partner um, within the business. So someone that they've, they go on the journey with, they get to know each other quite well and come to that place after, you know, also working on trust and some of the stuff we talked about where they can say, Hey, this is how I think, this is what I'm, how I'm seeing the situation. Do you think that's, I think I'm good at this. Do you think that's right? Have I got that right? Or is it something else? Um, because what Uruk says is, the best way to cultivate self-awareness is to get feedback from people that you trust mm -hmm. because I can say, well, I, I think I see, uh, you know, I see this project in this way, but maybe that's just me. You know, what do you, what do you think? Um, and you sort of start to see some of that. The other thing is we, we work with people to use some, some mapping techniques where we're, we're doing what I call a neural map where we're, we're getting some of the, it's almost like via a word association method, but down on paper, we're getting people to uh, think about a concept and then map 
the neural, the neural, con the connections in their brain between that concept and other things that come to mind for them as mm -hmm. a way of, of better understanding some of the, the way their, their knowledge map, you could say, in their brain. Mm -hmm. So that if I say, well, what do I, you know, if you asked me to be, uh, you know, what do I think about um, decentralization? You know, um, I could tell you something that I think is what I think about it. But if I do one of these maps, then other things will come to mind. Other things will pop into my mind that I'll write down. And I might go, that seems bizarre to me. That Surely that's not relevant to decentralization. But if I just don't self-edit and I write it down and then I populate this whole map, um, the argument is that, well, if that thing came to mind when I was thinking about decentralization, then somehow it's, it's associated in my brain. Um, now, it's not a perfect science. It might be that it comes to mind because I just had this chat with you about that or something. But, um, but it's an interesting experiment to say what comes to mind that, that might suggest some interesting things running in the background for me and therefore help me to go, oh, okay, I thought that my thinking was like this, but actually those other things are there. What, what do I think about the hypothesis of, of that telling me something about myself? So we do some sort of interesting mm -hmm. creative experiments and, and exercises with people to help them just get a little bit more curious about understanding themselves so that they're that little bit faster during a project or meeting or whatever to, um, to come to the place of going, oh, is this what I would say? Is this really true or is this just me? Yeah. Mm, to overcome your own biases. Yeah, yeah. If not overcome them, become more, see them, yeah, <laughs> see yeah, them a yeah. bit more. Yeah. But I mean, you're working with this with people at work, but this is extremely powerful in life in general, right? Mm, I mean, it's, I hope um, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for for today. It's been great to have you here, um, learning a lot more about um, philosophy and. Um, yeah, it's been some good good reflections. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much, Mir. It's it, it's um yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you, and I love what you're doing. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you want to read up more about the guest, then you can go to the show notes to get all of the links. And also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest episode. Thank you for today. See you in the next episode.